Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, November 2nd, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to start this week by talking about Robert Mueller, the special counsel, and the first indictments that he issued this week in the uh, ongoing probe of Russian meddling in the 2016 election. The first three indictments came in. We're going to have Darren Samuelson, uh, who's following that for Politico, in the studio to chat about it. And we're going to talk about what might be coming next in that investigation. Uh, then we're going to switch over a little bit. We're going to be talking about what's next for the Trump administration next week. Uh, the president is going to Asia on a 12-day, five-country trip. Uh, we are going to preview that, talk a little bit about the issues that are going to be in play. And then for our final segment this week, we've been talking a lot about Republican Senate primaries in our last few episodes. We're going to talk about a big Democratic one on the horizon. California Democrat Dianne Feinstein, a uh, multi-decade incumbent, uh, is going to face a primary challenge from the state Senate president. And we're going to talk a little bit about how that came to be, what the chances of success are, and what that says about the state of the Democratic Party in general. A couple quick notes before we jump into all that. Remember, you can email us your questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. All right, and let's welcome our panelists into the studio this week. We have, as usual, our White House reporter, Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana. Hello. And joining us this week to talk about the Robert Mueller investigation, we have senior White House reporter, Darren Samuelson. Hi, Darren. Hey, Scott. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for bringing me back. Our first data point this week is the number 12, and that is the number of counts in special counsel Robert Mueller's indictment of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his associate Rick Gates, who was the deputy campaign manager. Uh, Mueller's office also announced on Monday that it had obtained a guilty plea from George Papadopoulos, a uh, lower-level Trump campaign aide, for lying to the FBI. So, Darren... This represents a new phase in the investigation into uh, that started into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. What exactly was in this first round of charges and what wasn't in them? Well, it's spelled out for us uh, the case that they are trying to bring against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, two of the most senior people at one point in time in the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, but it has nothing really to do with their campaign work. It all has to do with their lobbying activities going back to the middle of the 2000s. Uh, the work that they did on behalf of the Ukraine government in power at the time, and questionable financial dealings, how they submitted their taxes, leaving things off, not telling their accountants what they were earning, spending lavishly uh, with the money that they were not in turn uh, filing in their taxes. And um, this will all now go through a justice system that's going to take a long time before we ever get to a point where it's guilty or not guilty. Clearly, this was done to try and push these two individuals to try and flip and talk uh, about much wider and broader things having to do with the Donald Trump campaign. So that was what was in it. Uh, what wasn't in it, again, was anything really to do with what was going on 
in the Trump campaign at the time, whether there was collusion with the Russians. Uh, but you've got to understand that this is really just the first indictment and this is a long process. Mueller is going to be going after individuals of all shapes and sizes from different points in time in the campaign. And so he had charges ready to go. He filed them. Uh, a very dramatic moment, though, for sure. And what about uh, in in the the Papadopoulos uh, accusations? And well, which he pled pled guilty to. Yeah, he pled guilty to lying to the FBI, and in turn has become, for arguably terms, a state witness. It's unclear exactly what that means and what the cooperation is that he's been providing. There is a lot of speculation. He's been wearing a wire since he was arrested in July and maybe, you know, was uh, taping conversations that he had to try and, uh, you know, get other people in the Trump world to acknowledge things that they had done. Uh, That would be something we would find out in future indictments or future filings that happen uh, for Papadopoulos as this case uh, proceeds. Obviously, it is a, a chilling signal, I think, to people in the Trump world to know that there was somebody who uh, they might have been talking to in a period of time where they didn't know that that person was cooperating with the FBI. I think the thing that struck me as I was reading all this on Monday was just uh, the the extent of what we don't know kind of becoming becoming more clear, right? The fact that this particular thing was sealed for months. Amazing. In a case where there were so many leaks and so many other things were coming out, obviously, uh, it's a giant guessing game. Where are these leaks coming from? Uh, you know, the the story I wrote, I think, about a month ago that Robert Mueller has no comment was the headline really brings home the point that the Mueller team really speaks through their public documents. As far as I know, they're not talking. It's illegal for them to talk to uh, to the press. So anything that's probably coming out can come from the defense side of the equation, uh, who is free to talk about grand jury proceedings, who's free to talk about any interactions they might have with Bob Mueller. Um, but yeah, something like a Papadopoulos arrest at Dulles Airport in July, which obviously, you know, not like a, a very well-recognized person. So even if he mm-hmm. was taken into custody uh, at uh, at customs, you know, people are probably not going to be tweeting about that. Um, but nonetheless, the person was arrested and um, uh, it remained under wraps until we see this court filing on, on, on Monday. But it was also dramatic in the way that they rolled it out, too. You know, they waited about an hour and a half. All the attention and focus, you had almost like O.J. Simpson helicopters flying over Paul Manafort's (laughs) house, um, watching him get traversed from uh, his home in Alexandria down to the FBI uh, office where they were processing him, then over to the courthouse. And it's just as he's, uh, I think, in the courthouse that we then get this second document saying, hold on a second, there's something, a much bigger shoe that potentially just dropped there. Yeah. I want to jump back into that in a moment. But Eliana, you uh, wrote a story with a really good point about all this that and as as Darren mentioned you know especially uh, with Manafort and Gates the charges relate to some of their work bef- uh, largely before they joined the campaign and um it, it you were getting at just like how Trump got tied up in all this stuff the campaign he was running was not attracting the usual people in Republican politics that you would expect to be involved in a presidential campaign thus Paul Manafort Yeah, the the thrust of my story really was that there were no mainstream political operatives in in the primary and and even in the general election after Trump had won the primary who were willing to associate themselves with the Trump campaign, which the vast majority of um, people believed would be a historically losing campaign. And they just did not want to sully their resumes by associating themselves with Trump. And I remember during the campaign hearing um, political operatives say to me, 
that it was going to be a career killer to be associated with Trump. And so they had an extremely skeletal campaign and could not uh, find people with traditional campaign experience and knowledge to work on the campaign. And so that is why they ended up with – and obviously the Ben Carson's campaign had somewhat similar problems. The George Papadopoulos came to the Trump campaign from the Carson campaign. Um, they ended up with people with these bizarre backgrounds, um, non-traditional campaign backgrounds who were not known really to um, to the broader public – not that political campaign operatives really are, but really were not known in among political campaign operatives. But Manafort had not worked on a presidential campaign since the Bob Dole campaign, and really his primary experience was on the 1976 Gerald Ford campaign, uh, tamping down the uh, what they thought would be a delegate revolt when Ronald Reagan was threatening to uh, seize the nomination from Ford, who was actually a sitting president. So uh, he was not exactly like a sprightly up-and-coming young guy. <laughs> and he, after having worked for all these, um, you know, tin pot dictators like Marcos in the Philippines and many others up until Yanukovych in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, um, he he really hadn't worked for American politicians and um, and had worked for sort of these disreputable foreign clients and was looking to get back into American politics, saw Trump as his way back in, um, but really was only hired because nobody with a uh, b- better reputation was willing to associate himself with Trump and got to Trump through his friend, uh, the real estate mogul Tom Barrick. And co- conversely, no other candidate was really interested in touching Manafort. Exactly. Um <laughs> The lack of a traditional vetting process, it, it is it, – it really does reflect the extent to which Trump was an outsider candidate, A, that he couldn't find anybody better than Manafort, Gates and Papadopoulos and the lack of a traditional vetting structure for hires. We saw a, we saw a lot of uh, fall down in that regard. You know, Jeb Bush hired somebody who had racist, uh, you know, tweets out there. But this is really an extreme version of that. So they were willing to overlook a lot. Um, in terms of hiring to get somebody with some sort of American political, irrelevant political experience. And the fact that there was even a delegate revolt and they needed somebody to tamp that down, I I think, does speak to um, the extent to which Trump really was uh, a historically, you know, outsider political candidate. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Darren, jumping back into Papadopoulos, you mentioned, you know, that that in some ways that the uh, both the drama around the announcement of uh, his guilty plea, but also what was contained in it um, ended up overshadowing, well, not overshadowing, but I put it this way. When uh, when I saw the news alerts that Manafort and Gates were going to be indicted, uh, it did not occur to me that they were going to have competition for biggest story <laughs> of the day. Yes. Um, but so what, what was inside that, that, you know, it was Papadopoulos lying to the FBI, but it was the specifics of what he lied about that were pretty explosive and kind of indicate where where things might be going uh, with with the rest of the probe. Yeah, and in, in a sense, again, with Manafort and Gates' indictment not relating to the campaign, but Papadopoulos very clearly uh, serving as a signal that the campaign itself is, you know, it was the mandate that Mueller has, is he supposed to be looking into collusion uh, with the Russians but also that um, here is an example with some emails that clearly uh, Mueller has that he's been able to review that he was able to then determine 
that uh, George Papadopoulos was lying, showing that another offer for dirt on Hillary Clinton was made available through this uh, person, as Eliana said, who was not vetted very carefully. Um, You know, it squares up with the other uh, piece of public information that we do have about the Donald Trump Jr. meeting at Trump Tower uh, with another offer for Hillary Clinton dirt, which is, again, the whole point of, of this investigation is how did all of the DNC emails end up uh, in WikiLeaks's hands? How did uh, the drip, drip, drip happen of John Podesta's information as well? So, again, uh, at the beginning stages of an indictment, again, all of this is actually happening pretty darn early in the process. Keep that in mind as well. Um, I had b- looked back um, in in my nerdiest of nerd ways. I went back and reviewed every single special counsel case that has been happening since Watergate to try and put in perspective when an indictment should even be coming. And I think the average was something like 15 to 17 months, typically from uh, appointment of special counsel to an actual indictment. And understand as well, there have been 21 overall special counsel cases since Watergate, but only nine of them have actually led to indictments. The other ones ended up with, you know, exoneration completely. And so indictments is an unusual occurrence. It does happen. It often leads, interestingly enough, not to the person who was the original target of the investigation, ending up That's in some sort of... a big objection to them, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and we actually don't even have a law, not to get too diverted, but we don't even have an underlying law that um, has pers- allowed these independent councils to exist. This, this expired after Ken Starr in 1999, 2000. So this is all happening under Justice Department regulations. Um, so it's all clearly Mueller, coming back to your question... Mueller giving a signal, look, I am still very much looking at this case. I have some uh, evidence that I'm ready to put in front of the public to to chew over. But again, this thing is going to take, I think, a lot more time. People need to kind of strap in, whether it be on the Manafort uh, Gates trial that, again, I, I don't think is going to happen until 2018 or 19 for that matter. But watch for more indictments to come down the pike. And, you know, obviously, uh, Mueller is very good at keeping things you know, uh, behind uh, wraps that he doesn't want out there by not sharing them necessarily with defense lawyers who might, you know, then release that information. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the point you made about the timeline, I think, just speaks to the the low hanging fruit nature of what Manafort has been up to for with the lobbying for foreign foreign right. countries without uh, without disclosing it. Uh, for that example, was all being investigated by the FBI. Actually, going back to 2014, well before he even landed, before Donald Trump had announced he was running for president. So. You know, this was stuff that the FBI had. They were clearly ready to bring the charges. Um, and and so, yeah, that's similar to um, just to, to get nerdy again. Whitewater is the one sort of outlier where there were charges brought right away by Robert Fisk, who was the very first special counsel before Kenneth Starr, who was pursuing the land deals involving the Clintons. And he moved quickly. Um, he inherited a lot of things that were given to him as he started on. But also keep in mind, in terms of timing, Robert Fisk is appointed in 1994. The final report in Whitewater, Monica, the whole nine yards doesn't get written until 2002. Eight years. George W. Bush is president by the time this report (laughs) comes out. Wow. Um, Eliana, what was the White House reaction to all this? Um, And I guess actually maybe we should separate out Trump's reaction from the White House reaction because as we've talked about ad nauseum, those can be different things. Yeah. You know, I think the White House is – certainly is making a, a enormous effort to play it cool. And as Darren said, this really didn't touch on the dynamics of the campaign or on Russian collusion. And so we didn't get much of a heated reaction from the White House. But there is a 
big debate going on between Steve Bannon and his allies on the outside and Ty Cobb and his legal team on the inside. And Bannon really wants to see the White House take a more aggressive role to begin undermining Bob Mueller. Um, Bannon has acknowledged that it's it would be impossible to, to for Trump to fire Mueller outright. It would be political suicide. But he does really want to see Ty Cobb and the legal team inside the White House um, try to circumscribe what Mueller is allowed to investigate and sort of make clear publicly that they're not going to tolerate, um, you know, kind of a kind of endless investigation that goes on for years and years and that undermines the president or the White House in any way. And that's not the approach that Ty Cobb and his team are taking. They've been cooperative and tolerant of the investigation. Trump himself, you know, I think was somewhat uh, angry and upset, but and but I think you know he's a counterpuncher, and so he's been raising the Hillary Clinton Obama era uranium deal, and essentially trying to say that whatever the charges are about the Trump campaign's meddling uh, or collusion with Russia, there's as much evidence that Democrats were engaging in the same sort of activities. And honestly, on that, he's not wrong. I would just say that. Uh, the Clinton campaign took a much more sophisticated approach to using Russian operatives um, to get uh, dirt on their political opponents than it appears to be that that the Trump campaign has done. It's likely that there's going to be much more uh, at some point. I guess we don't know exactly when, but but this thing is rolling along. And yeah, you have congressional you know, investigations that continue as well. They want to try and wrap up before the 2018 elections. Um, we look like they're maybe going to be splitting along partisan lines with Democratic reports and Republican reports, but they're, in, they're, they're interviewing the same, a lot of the same people. They're trying to try not to step on Bob Mueller's toes. Um, so that's obviously a, a key challenge for, uh, for Mueller going forward. And um, clearly more interviews are happening. Hope Hicks, the White House uh, communications director, is going to be sitting down after the president's rush, excuse me, uh, Asia trip with Bob Mueller's uh, people. So I'm sure lots more White House staffers, former uh, campaign staffers, if they haven't already been talking to Mueller. Again, I mean, fascinating. Another piece, you know, George Papadopoulos was interviewed by the FBI in January uh, of 2017, seven days after the inauguration. And we didn't know about that until just this week. All right. Well, we're going to have to have you back to talk about it more. Thanks for being here, Darren. Thanks. Okay. As we bid uh, goodbye to Darren, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Holly Tusi, our foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. All right. Our data point for our next segment is the number five. And on Friday, President Trump will depart for a 12-day five-country trip to Asia, a uh, high-stakes trip that includes a meeting with the Chinese president, a focus on North Korea and its nuclear program, and a tricky balancing act regarding the leader of the Philippines. Uh, so a lot, a lot to unpack, a lot to handle with with this trip. Let's start broad. What should we expect in the next week? What what would the Trump administration like the story of this foreign trip to be? Well, I think they would like it to be uh, more about the actual trip uh, to these Asian countries as opposed to uh, the ongoing Russia investigations. But there's no question that the Russia investigations are going to be looming large over this trip. Uh, And to some degree, that's actually worrying some people because uh, they wonder if in a bid to distract from the Russia stuff, Trump might try to strike a deal or make some sort of a move while in Asia. uh, Something that's not already on the books, basically. (laughs) Right. Uh, There's there's some people, you know, warning about wag the dog stuff uh, related to North Korea. 
And so that's that's kind of what's out there is people are wondering, what's he going to do? Uh, and can he himself stay focused? An open question. Um, Eliana. Ongoing concern, <laughs> we like to call it. Uh, Eliana, in, in terms of the, you know, how the um, Trump's uh, security advisors are are um, preparing him to, uh, to to deal with all this, uh, what you know, what's what's going on behind the scenes on the National Security Council uh, at, at at this point? Trump meets with H.R. Uh, McMaster twice a week, and McMaster has been using those meetings to prepare him and brief him for this trip for the past several weeks. And outside of that, the administration has had several briefings for the president, kind of preparing him for each country. But interestingly, you know, Trump has developed a pretty cr- close relationship with the Japanese prime minister. That's, I believe that's where he's going first. Yes. Um, so he's talked to Abe more than any other foreign leader, um, even more than Theresa May uh, in the UK, which is pretty interesting. So That is interesting. Um, yeah. So it seems to me, you know, Japan will probably be the easiest of these trips and China by far the most challenging. And so I know that the White House um, kind of considers China the central portion of this trip and um, has done, you know, the most preparation for the unfurling of, you know, a broader China-Asia strategy in that in that portion of the trip. Well, I want to jump into that because that's really interesting. But for, do, do we have any sense of what what the the Trump Abe connection is 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 based on? Like, what did have they did they hit it off or and and are? are... I think part of it is golf. Golf. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, flattery, probably also. Uh-huh. As part of it. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about. Yeah, and also, you know, I I do think Abe is is conscious that he needs the U.S. involved in the region if he's going to continue to fend off uh, increasing Chinese aggression. So for that reason, he's gone out of his way to, mm. um, you know, keep Trump close. Uh-huh. So um, let's talk a little bit about China. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I would also say that um, the South Korea portion of the trip could be challenging as well, mm-hmm. uh, in part because South Korea on many levels has uh, you know, extraordinary amount to lose if there is a conflict with North Korea. And also because the U.S. president and the South Korean leader have not necessarily quite been on the same page on how to deal with North Korea. There have been some very public uh, miscommunications and disagreements. And, right. I mean, there's a sense in South Korea that diplomacy is is more important than what uh, President Trump uh, has been uh, has been saying, uh, <laughs> and so I would I would definitely watch that. That actually might prove to be uh, even trickier uh, than China, where things tend to often be highly choreographed. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's but that gets back to some of the concerns about Trump, right? Is that these highly choreographed uh, interactions can are are not built for twenty uh, first century you know tweeting president uh, situations. That's the thing, and and you know the Chinese are famously. Uh, sensitive to diplomatic protocol. And so how Trump does uh, while he's there and other parts of Asia, but especially in China, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, you know, how how does he greet people? Uh, how does what does he say about the food? Uh, how does uh, he shake hands? Uh, does he bow? That's that's a big one. You're never supposed to bow, no matter what the cultural uh, norm is. If you're an American president, you're not supposed to bow to another leader. And will he just kind of inadvertently do that? Uh, and you know, what does he say when he's jet lagged and he's awake in the middle of the night and he has his uh, Twitter finger ready? So there's a there's a lot going on there, and I think it's going to be uh, a very very 
very interesting to see how he does, especially because it's such a long and grueling trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twelve days in Asia is just it's enough to really knock the lights out of anybody. Well, and we were talking before we uh, got on the air. It knocks the lights out of reporters sometimes, right? <laughs> I am so glad I am not going on this trip. <laughs> I, <laughs> jet lag is a nightmare. The uh, just you know the confined conditions, the actually fairly limited access you have uh, at times. All these reporters chasing you know in many ways the same story. Uh, man, you know, good luck. Good luck to the brave souls who signed up for that. <laughs> Um, it, m- more specifically on the subject of China, you know, what, what, what will be up for discussion, uh, you know, assuming things, uh, the, all, the, all the protocol, right, goes to plan and things kind of go as, as have been laid out, what, what will be up for discussion? What's going to be, you know, on, on the menu? Uh, well, my understanding is that North Korea will be probably the key issue that they'll be discussed because it's such a sensitive uh, and security-focused issue. Uh, I'm sure, you know, with the Chinese, it's hard to uh, escape trade uh, and trade practices. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about Asian countries in particular is, you know, their trade and their foreign policies are almost the same thing, uh, which is, and you see more of a divide in the U.S. Um, So I'm sure that uh, that will come up. I know that the U.S. has been uh, you know, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson recently gave a speech where he s- spoke out against what he called um, predatory economics uh, of China. And so there's concern about how China is going about um, dealing with other countries, not just the U.S., in terms of uh, trade deals and ec- economics approaches. And uh, what China's doing in the South China Sea, uh, I think, is going to be another issue. And there will probably be many, many more things. I mean, this, these, these are uh, major countries coming to the table. And They'll probably have many things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And with the North Korea question, obviously, being uh, that, that's the common thread that seems to be linking all these country visits together, right? That's going to be a major topic of discussion with, with all of them. Absolutely. And it's fascinating because you wonder what the North is going to do uh, while Trump is there. Are they going to make any sort of moves? Is there going to be a, a missile test of some sort, um, a statement of some sort? Or will they just kind of watch and see uh, how Trump deals with these various countries? Because you have to remember something else, which is that uh, Trump goes to Asia right now a fairly weak, uh, in a fairly weak position. And Asian leaders know this, especially the Chinese. His ratings are, are fairly low. The Russian investigations are looming. Uh, and you know, some of them are probably wondering how long he's going to survive in office mm. and, and whether he can really get anything done, no matter what promises he makes. Uh, at the same time, this is a president who really likes to uh, score wins and you know talk about getting deals. And there are some concerns that he might uh, say yes to something that might not be a very good deal. Uh, so it's it's going to be very fascinating. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I mean, I never really thought about the domestic political situation intruding on the the conversations he's going to be having with foreign leaders. But but the, I, I wonder also like how um, if you know if they if if they really are concerned about whether or not he's going to be in office that much longer. I wonder how like, rooted in in reality or an accurate reading of of uh, of what's what's going on is right. Like, I mean, the the odds we've talked before, like the odds of Trump like leaving office before the next election seem no like way. pretty <laughs> like infinitesimally low. But there's, you know, you can stay in office and still be ineffectual, right? Yes. Well, we have seen that before. <laughs> that's that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, Eliana, any, any other kind of uh, tidbits or thoughts about the preparation of this or what we what we ought to be looking out for is this? Uh, I mean, I think the main thing to watch, it, it does seem like with China, the the um, North Korean crisis is kind of 
um, taken precedence in their relationship. But I'm really interested to see the extent to which trade policy comes up um, because it really is um, it really is the area where Trump reflects kind of a sea change um, from previous or tr- sort of traditional Republican administrations. And, you know, he's withdrawn from TPP and he's raised it with every country where the U.S. is running a uh, deficit, including Japan and China. And it's kind of been tabled with respect to China. But I'd be really interested um, to see if that gets raised on this trip and how the administration balances its demands um, from chi- from China on trade with its demands on North Korea. And I don't think ultimately the administration is going to be able to get from China enough on North Korea to make an actual difference. So if there's a pivot to making some serious demands on trade, um, that'll, that'll be very interesting. Holly, last word? I think it's kind of odd that the president at this moment is not planning to go visit the DMZ, uh, the the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. Uh, I have to wonder if they might, you know, let him go anyway. I I personally went to the DMZ like, you know, several years ago, and I was struck uh, by how how built up it is. But I mean, here's the thing. There's even a gift shop at the DMZ. (laughs) At least there was when I was there. And I, I just, uh, I just think it's going to be. Um, I don't know why Trump wouldn't want to go, and but if he does go, uh, becomes what he does, yeah, it, it's an issue unto itself. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, that's something that we could be watching next week. Regardless, we'll be watching the trip next week. Uh, thank you very much for coming in to talk us through it. Thanks for having me. All right, and for our third data point. Uh, We are going to shift into domestic politics and talk a little bit about California and a big Democratic primary that is brewing out there. Well, actually, not quite a Democratic primary, but we'll talk about why that is in a second. Uh, Our data point is 25 years. That's how long that California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein has been in the Senate. And a fellow Democrat is hoping to stop her there instead of letting her add another term. Kevin DeLeon, the state Senate president in California, is challenging Feinstein in what could be next year's marquee Democratic primary contest. And on the phone to talk about it, we have a national political reporter, Gabriel Benedetti. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Scott. Thank you for making the time. So tell us, how did this primary come about? What, you know, why, why would someone want to challenge Feinstein? And what is DeLeon's message? Well, let's start with Feinstein herself. To make a long story short, she's been around for a really long time. Uh, and a lot of people in California, particularly more progressive activists, have been upset with the way that she talks about Donald Trump. They want her to go harder at him. He, she has said things like, we need to give him a chance to try and be a good president. Uh, and basically, she's had people at a lot of her events say, you need to impeach him now. No more talking about how he could be a good president. Uh, so that's the backdrop there. Then you look at De Leon. He is the uh, leader of the state Senate in California, pretty progressive guy, but he is he's termed out. He can't still serve any longer. So he needs something else to do. There's a governor's race that he's taking a pass on. He doesn't want to run for lieutenant governor uh, and no one's going to run against Feinstein. So he says, well, why not me? And what he's trying to do here basically is say we need new blood. We need someone to stand stronger against the White House. Uh, And what he's trying to do, honestly, is try and tap into some of the energy um, of the Bernie Sanders movement from 2016. It's going to be hard for him because I remember vividly going to Hillary Clinton events in Los Angeles where Kevin DeLeon introduced her uh, against Bernie Sanders. But the idea here is that, uh, you know, he needs to be a liberal new new energy for the party. and, And that's 
Feinstein no longer is able to provide that. Eliana, I'm just curious, like, to, to what extent, how much does this sound to you like what what we've seen in uh, in terms of new blood coming in in Republican uh, primaries, especially Republican Senate primaries over the last few years? And, and how much of this sounds like kind of something something that's going to end up looking a little different? I think there are a lot of similarities, and I think a, a lot of the divisions in the Democratic Party have been obscured because there's just so much of a foc- so much focus on the Republican Party because Trump adds so much drama, and also because uh, Republicans are in power, so there's a natural focus on the GOP. But um, but beyond that, you know what you're seeing from Republican insurgents is a real desire for the. They say the establishment is too moderate, that uh, they need to go, um, you know, attack Democrats harder, push harder for their priorities. Um, I mean, the whole, uh, I don't know, the name, Cuck, you know, is meant to connote that, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And so, you know, when these guys are challenging establishment uh, senators for being feckless, that's precisely what they're doing. I think when you hear from uh, Feinstein's challenger that she's going too easy on Trump, that's precisely what you hear from uh, from the far right when they talk about Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. I, I think, you know, the the last point that I'm interested in um, about all this, what what should we draw from what we're seeing in the Feinstein uh, de Leon campaign, which is really in its infancy? This is only a few weeks old. But what what are we seeing that we should... Um, apply and could potentially learn from this in other democratic contests around the country and and what about it is is unique and 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 probably not not worthy of of drawing big lessons from <laughs> well a lot of it is super unique i think one of the really important things to to remember is that the reason that we're talking about this is because this hasn't happened anywhere else which is pretty bizarre actually a lot of people thought that after the Bernie Sanders Hillary Clinton fight of 2016, the Bernie wing, which does feel ascendant right now, would run a ton of candidates against sitting senators all over the country. But realistically, that hasn't happened in a lot of races yet. Now, it still might, but when you look at the actually vulnerable uh, Democratic senators who are up for reelection in 2018, there are a lot who, you know, could be seen as pretty weak, and they haven't really gotten serious challenges yet. So obviously that might change. But what's telling about this is that it's really in these liberal strongholds that we're seeing these fights. And that in some ways is actually an echo of what happened with the Tea Party in 2010 and 2012, where it was in deep red states that you saw the biggest challenges. Look at uh, Mike Lee taking out Bennett in Utah, for example. Utah is a pretty red state. That's sort of a mirror image of what we could be seeing in California. But again, because of this top two system, it's going to be really hard for De Leon to to really, uh, you know, to make it too far. And whenever I talk to Bernie aligned activists about why we are not seeing more of this in other races, the first thing they say is, well, wait, wait and see. It might still happen. But the second thing they say is Democrats have a chance to take the House if things change a little bit. They're on defensive in the Senate and they don't want to be having these fights all over the country. They're going to try and just win back Republican held seats whenever they can. That all sounds pretty sunny from a national political perspective uh, for the Democratic leadership, but we'll see. I mean, nothing has happened yet beyond this race, and it doesn't look competitive yet. All right. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on that. Uh, An election in California uh, sounds pretty good to those of us who like visiting California at the very least. So um, maybe maybe it will get competitive. Uh, We'll we'll have you back to talk about it uh, sometime soon. Gabe, thanks for being here. Thank you. And Eliana, thank you for joining us as always. Of course. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. 
Remember, you can email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write a written review of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. So once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher, Politico web producer, Zach Montalaro. Thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you again next week.